familiar verse, a passage from Ephesians chapter 2, will be our focus this evening. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, that no one should boast. Let us pray. Father, we again ask that you would open your word to us and help us to understand and to see and to give glory where glory belongs and in no way to usurp from you the glory that is due your name for the work of salvation that you have bought, brought by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Father, we ask that our hearts might be comforted and strengthened by your word this evening and understanding that salvation is of the Lord and that we are the objects of your grace and mercy. It was not we who have made ourselves nor even remade ourselves, but that all the glory and honor of redemption goes to you and you alone through Jesus Christ our Lord in whose name we pray. Amen. We have been talking these Sunday evenings about uh, the issue of atonement and the various views that have been held in uh, the Christian church concerning the effectiveness and the extent of the shed blood of Jesus Christ with regard to the salvation of sinners. I want to summarize the three primary views that we see. First view is that Jesus died for each and every sinner and therefore all will eventually be saved. This view is called universalism. Uh, it's very hopeful, and it is held by um, what we might call extreme liberal wings of the church that uh, cannot, cannot get their minds around eternal perdition, the thought that God should lose any, that any should perish eternally in hell, is, is truly a, a terrible concept to think about. Those of us who have had loved ones who have died outside of Christ, it is hard to think that they will be forever separated from God's love. And yet, we have no basis in Scripture, in the revelation of God to us, to advocate a doctrine of universalism, that all men will eventually be saved. The second view that we have talked about is that Jesus died for each and every sinner, the benefits of his death being contingent upon their believing. Now this is the classic Arminian view of the atonement, that Jesus' blood is sufficient and intended for the sins of all men. But we might say that it is only activated by the sinner's own faith. The Reformed view, the third view, the one that we generally, I think, hold here and the one that I am essentially defending, is that Jesus died for the elect of God, who will each believe in time and be saved. This is popularly known as limited atonement. I prefer definite atonement. Some call it particular atonement. I noticed in the bulletin today the little uh, summary of, of Spurgeon in the, in the book review in the back that he was a particular Baptist. 
uh, which does not mean that he was, um, I don't know, snooty uh, and wanted to have his robe just right. It meant that he believed in limited or definite atonement, that there was a particular target and intention of God in sending Christ, an intention in Christ in going to the cross, shedding his blood, and that was for the elect of God. John Owen says this in summary of at least some of the views that I've looked at here, particularly the Universalist, but he says this, God imposed His wrath due unto, and Christ underwent the pains of hell for either all the sins of all men or all the sins of some men or some of the sins of all men. Now, I think he covered everything there. Either all the sins of all men, now that would be universalism, or all the sins of some men whom we call the elect, and that would be the Reformed theology, or some of the sins of all men. If the last, some sins of all men, then have all men some sins to answer for. And so shall no man be saved. That's really the crux. If we have some sins to answer for, who can stand? If God should count iniquity, O oh Lord, who can stand? The biblical answer is no one. But the Arminian says that there is one sin that negates the blood of Jesus Christ, and that is the sin of unbelief. And the logic of the Arminian position is that Jesus Christ on Golgotha died for all the sins of all men except one. The sin of not believing. Now how they get around that is what we're going to talk about tonight. The question of faith, the issue of believing. And there is no argument between the Arminian and the Calvinist as to the instrumentality of believing in the salvation of any sinner. In, in other words, no man will ever be saved who doesn't believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and His Savior. And we read here in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And it's important to note that we're not saved by faith. That's, that's a common mistake among Christians, that we are saved by faith. No, we are saved by grace through faith. Grace is the operative force in any sinner's salvation. Faith is the means whereby grace brings about the sinner's redemption. Grace, we understand, comes from God. Where does the faith come from? That's really the issue. Two questions come out of this passage and our discussion of definite atonement. Where does faith come from, first of all? And is believing a work? Now, I think you all understand, but I'll go ahead and clarify it just in case. Faith and believing are the same word in the Bible. One is a noun and the other is a verb. 
So when I say faith, what I mean is the, the state of believing. When I say believing, what I mean is having faith. So the words are, are synonymous. Where does that faith come from? Does it come from the free will of the sinner? That is the teaching of the Arminian. And it is actually, if we would be honest, our own experience, is it not? We came to a place in our life where we believed in the gospel of Jesus Christ and we trusted, which is also the same word, because to believe is to trust. You've all heard the, the example of, of the chair. You know, when you sit down, you are having faith. You trust that that chair will hold you up. So these words are all somewhat synonymous. And when we came to the Lord, when we prayed, when we asked Jesus Christ to save us, we knew ourselves to be believing. And so it's easy for us to think that that faith came from within us. And in a manner of speaking, it most certainly did. The question is, did something else happen first? So does faith come from the free will of the sinner, or does it come from God through regeneration by the Holy Spirit? You must be born again. See, that's the event that we claim precedes believing. God the Holy Spirit enters into our heart as He promised and replace the unbelieving heart of the sinner with a believing heart of a child of God. Our response is to believe. And frankly, I didn't feel anything. I didn't feel open heart surgery or anything like that. So it does, as I said, seem like we are believing. And that leads to the second question we're going to look at this evening. Is believing a work? Something that the sinner does to secure salvation? Or is it something done to the sinner as a part of salvation? Do we bring the faith to God's grace? Or does God's grace bring the faith to us? Now, this passage in Ephesians chapter 2 might seem to answer the question, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. Well, there we go. Let's all go home. You know, it's not, a, it's not of ourselves. It's, it's the gift of God. Well, there's a problem, and that is the question, what does the that refer to? We have grace, and we have faith, and then we have the relative pronoun, that. Now, Greek grammar teaches us that relative pronouns will agree with their antecedent in gender. And you all hear, blah, 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 blah. What it means is, in the Greek language, not, not so much in the English, but in the Greek language, every word has a gender, either masculine or feminine or neuter, and the gender and what it's referring to should match. Okay? But in Ephesians 2, verse 8, the, the relative pronoun that 
does not match the gender of either grace or faith, which means that apparently Gamaliel did not teach grammar. And it has caused a lot of discussion. Uh, Paul's writings cause a lot of discussions. There are an infinite number of books that have been written about what Paul really meant. But we have the problem in front of us, and that is we don't really know what it's referring to. It's neuter, and the other two words are feminine and masculine. So like, what are you talking about? And the Arminian will, of course, make a great deal of that and say that, that um, the that doesn't refer to the faith or the grace, but rather to the concept of salvation. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And so it's the concept of salvation, which being a concept, would warrant a neuter relative pronoun, that. And frankly, I agree with the Arminian. I think that's exactly what Paul is saying. That salvation comes from God, and that not of yourselves. It, salvation, is the gift of God. And just as you, you wish to be honored and recognized in the gifts that you give, even more so does God desire to be honored in the gifts that He gives and, and doesn't intend to share that honor with anyone else. When you receive a gift for your birthday or for Christmas, you thank the giver. You don't claim part of the honor you are the recipient of the gift. And so you thank the giver and give the honor of the giving to the one who gave the gift. But in Arminian and Pelagian soteriology, we, they say that God brings the grace and man brings the faith. Well, that's not a gift. That's, that's a cooperative effort. Who gets the glory? Who gets the honor? When one brings one very important part and, and the other brings the other very important part. And, and we find that both of those elements are what they call sine qua non, without which nothing. If not for the grace of God, then all our believing would not get us anywhere. But without our believing, the grace of God is impotent to save. Now, most Reformed folk have a problem with that right there. That in any way what God does is in any sense impotent and incapable of accomplishing its purpose. And his purpose is just something that Reformed people have a hard time dealing with. On the other hand, and, and, and I'll grant that this is a in, in a large sense, this is a philosophical issue here. The Arminian has a hard time grasping the concept of, of man being saved apart from his will. God forcing salvation upon the unwilling sinner. So what one camp has a problem with the idea of God not accomplishing what he intends... The other camp has a problem with man being forced against his will so that God might accomplish what he intends. Does that all make sense? You know, it's, it's not that we don't both believe the Word of God, but rather that we both come to it 
with a certain paradigm of thinking. And that colors how we read the scripture. And so I, I want to say that because I, I, I'm not talking about Arminians as unbelievers or Arminians as those who, who don't honor the word of God. That's not the case. The case is we know ourselves to be, as it were, responsible for our decisions. We know that we're not being coerced when we choose to do things. The Arminian and the Calvinist both understand that man is responsible for what he wills to do. But does the scripture portray for us a God who doesn't get what he intends? And, and the Reformed theologian says, no, Scripture clearly portrays God to us as one who in all things accomplishes according to what He purposes. And we've talked about that before, so this evening we're going to look at the issue of faith and its relationship to grace. To assume that a fallen man can believe is to completely misunderstand the nature of unbelief. And this is something that you will find, I think, very frequently in Arminian teaching on the atonement. Scripture does not portray the sinner as neutral with regard to believing, but rather as hostile in unbelief. In other words, the unbeliever is not just ignorant and in need of enlightenment. He is not neutral toward God. He is negative or he is positive in his opposition to God. And he is portrayed as not being able on his own to do anything about that, nor even desiring to do so. Deuteronomy chapter 29, Moses says, Yet to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to know, nor eyes to see, nor ears to hear. The Lord has not given you these things. One chapter later in Deuteronomy chapter 30, it is promised that God would circumcise their hearts and give them a heart to know and eyes to see and ears to hear. They might obey and live and it is upon a faith in that promise that those who were faithful in Israel did, in fact, receive salvation. Jeremiah chapter 13, this famous phrase, Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then you also can do good who are accustomed to do evil. In other words, ain't going to happen. The Ethiopian does not change the color of his skin. The leopard does not change his spots. And the sinner does not begin to do good in his evil nature. Romans chapter 3, again, equally famous passage where Paul just simply starts pulling verses from the Old Testament. Verses that describe men in sin, in inherited and in and experience sin, and he says, There is none righteous, no, not even one. There is none who seeks for God. There is none who does good, not even one. 
To believe is not merely to be convinced from a condition of ignorance to one of knowledge. It is to overcome the positive power of the sin of unbelief. And, and that is an important distinction. Unbelief is not neutrality towards God. It is hostility toward God. It is something to be overcome. It is not merely a vacuum in our understanding. Much of modern evangelism treats the sinner as if he just needs to be convinced that Jesus is the Son of God. That is why apologetics, which is a very important branch of study, has become a central plank in modern evangelism. The reasoning is, if I convince you that there is a God, I have, we have to start there now, it didn't used to have to start there, we have to go all the way back to the beginning and start with convincing people that there is a God. Then we have to convince them that he is the God revealed in the Bible. That's tough too in our pluralistic society. And then we have to convince them that Jesus is the eternal Son of God, which means, oh my word, I've got to convince you that God is not just one God, he's three God. And it gets kind of complicated. And in fact, before I can lead anybody to salvation, I basically have to teach them the entirety of Christian theology because they're ignorant. The Bible says, yes, they are ignorant. They're ignorant willfully. And in fact, Romans says they're not ignorant at all. They know God, but they deny the honor due Him. We have to stick with what the Scriptures say, not what this or that philosopher says about man or what we want to believe about man, but rather what God says about man, and that is He is not neutral. He is hostile, and that Believing is not simply being convinced in our minds. It is the radical overcoming of a sin, and not just a sin, the root of all sin. John Calvin writes in his Institutes, unfaithfulness, which means unbelieving. Unfaithfulness then was the root of the fall. For Adam would never have dared oppose God's authority unless he had disbelieved in God's word. And that, I think, is true to Scripture, that the sin of unbelief, the one that the Arminian claims was not atoned for on Golgotha, is the worst of all of them. In fact, it's the root of all of them. And so the one sin that keeps us out of heaven entirely is remarkably the one sin for which Christ did not die. The one sin that John Owen says, if, if Jesus died only for some of the sins of all men, then all men have yet some sins to answer for, and therefore no man will be saved. The one sin that the Arminian says was not atoned for is the one sin without which no one can be saved. All other sins, the sins that we commit, the sins that we omit, the things that we find to be white, the things that we find to be black, the mortal and the venial, are nothing compared to the sin of unbelief because it is a sin of deep dishonor to God. We don't trust you. We don't believe your word. We call you a liar. See, it's not neutral. It's hostile. 
and it is the very root of our hostility as fallen men and women in the sight of God. And so believing, is it a work or is it grace? Now, modern Arminian writers, one of whom I consulted this week again, Norman Geisler, who claims to be a moderate Calvinist, that's, that's his definition for someone who doesn't believe in limited atonement or irresistible grace, he's a moderate Calvinist. Uh, in truth, he's not a Calvinist at all, he's an Arminian. Can the Arminian change his spots? No. But you can change the definition of words, you see that a lot, and you have to be careful. Because if I redefine something, you know, a Mormon can be defined as a Christian. But they're not. You have to watch what words mean and, and maintain what they mean. But the Arminian, the modern Arminian says that faith is not a work. It is, and this is their phrase, simply believing. Well, if it were so simple, why would Christ have died? Did God, has God not given us ample cause to believe? Paul says in Romans 1 that creation itself is enough to take, us, take away all excuse. And if we just think of creation, it takes a whole lot more faith to believe that all of this evolved from nothing or from all matter concentrated at the head of a pin and going boom. That takes faith. When you look at the complexity of a single cell or of an atom, the wonder of it is enough to convince us to believe. It is not simply believing. But if all believing entails moving from benign or harmless ignorance to enlightened faith, then all we need to do as Christians is to educate. Now, we, we hear that a lot in our culture. You know, all that's needed to eradicate crime and drug abuse, and premarital sex, and teenage pregnancies, and just about any other societal ill is just more education, right? It doesn't seem to be working. It's also not biblical. We need a new heart. We need a radical regeneration of our nature. To believe unto salvation is a far more arduous and impossible task or work than the keeping of the most rigid law. We can keep laws. We can toe the line. If someone gives us, and we're of a religious nature, if someone gives us a list of do's and don'ts, we can follow that list. But that's not believing. That's self-righteousness. But is believing a work? Now, Jesus was asked, what must we do to work the works of God? And his answer was, this is the work of God, to believe on him whom he has sent. Well, that seems to indicate that believing is a work. And we're taught by Paul that something is either of works or it is of grace. And Paul seems to separate those two quite far from each other. Because if believing is a work, and such a work that the sinner must and can do in order to be saved, then we have a salvation that is of works, is it not? 
I don't know how you can dance around that. If believing is a work as Jesus says that it is, and as I maintain that it is because of the unbelief that has to be overcome, and we must believe in order to activate that blood of Christ and bring about salvation, then frankly, folks, we have a salvation that is of works. But if believing is a work that fallen man cannot do, and yet must do if he is to be saved, then it must be by grace or it will not be at all. That is grace. Grace is not just some wiping clean the slate, God winking at us and saying, oh, it's okay, I, I forgive you. That's not grace. Grace is looking at man in his true condition and his true need. He is fallen in sin and hostile toward God, and he must believe, but he cannot. Grace brings the faith that brings salvation. The grace that motivates salvation. We read that in verse 8. For by grace you have been saved. Notice that that's passive. Not by grace you cooperate and save yourself. That's not what Paul says. For by grace you have been saved. The power that brought that salvation from God was his gracious loving kindness. And it was that grace that secures salvation. For by grace you have been saved through faith. That grace motivates and secures. And that is the gift. The grace and the faith that combine from God to bring about the salvation of any sinner is the gift of God. And as I said, God will be honored in the gifts that he has given. How many of you, again, in receiving a present from someone, have said afterwards, yes, uh, mom and dad gave me the present, but I opened it? Isn't that a ridiculous thought? Oh, oh yes, there were many presents under the tree that people gave to me, but I opened them. And if I hadn't opened them, I would have been stupid. <laughs> you don't take any credit. You know that the gift came from the giver. And your opening it was no more motive in giving you that gift than if it had never been wrapped. We might say that God does give the gift of salvation and in giving us the new heart, we do believe. And in that sense, we do open the present, the gift that God has given, but we don't take any credit for the giving of the gift. It is all from God. Believing is a work that all men must do to be saved, but which no man can do who has fallen in sin. And if it comes not by grace, then it comes not at all. But if by grace, then what is it that secures that grace? And this brings us back to the cross and to the efficacy of the blood of Jesus Christ. By what is this grace released if not by the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Is there some other act of God later on? Something else that God has done to secure the grace of faith to the sinner? 
Owen writes, This condition of faith is procured for us by the death of Christ, or it is not. In other words, he says, Grace in believing is either purchased for us by the blood of Jesus Christ, or not. One or the other. And if it be the fruit of the death of Christ, then why is it not bestowed on all if Christ died for all? So you have these, these thoughts, and I, I know that it's logic, and I know that that is a charge that is leveled against the Calvinist. Oh, oh you just want to use logic. Like there's something wrong with that. I, I haven't quite figured out what's wrong with logic. But here is the logic. Grace is secured to us either by the blood of Christ or it is not. If it is not secured to us by the blood of Christ, then we ask, by what is it secured? What more has God done? What more could God do than to send His only begotten Son to die in our stead, to shed His blood for our sins, to be made sin that we might become the righteousness of God? Do we have any indication that God has or will do anything other than the death of Jesus Christ to secure all of His grace, including the grace of believing? And so to the one who says that Christ shed His blood for all, John Owen says, why then are not all saved? If by that blood grace in believing is secured for all those for whom Christ died, then if He died for all, all will and must be saved. But the truth about faith is that the faith that saves is by grace alone, and it is secured by the blood of Jesus Christ for everyone for whom he died. Again, John Owen says, Christ did not die for any upon the condition if they do believe, but he died for all God's elect that they should believe. And glory to God alone. Let us pray. Father, we do humbly thank you that by your grace you have saved and not by our works. And you have given us all that we need to be saved. Not only the grace that comes from you, but also the faith that comes from you. Faith that comes with a regenerate heart and responds believingly in Jesus Christ as the only Savior, the only mediator appointed between God and man. And Father, we do pray that you would continue this work in our church and in our families, that you would continue to regenerate the heart and to lead us, unbelievers, to an abiding and eternal faith that is a gift from you. All glory and honor be to you alone, through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Please st stand this evening for the benediction. Very short, but very meaningful one from Paul to Timothy. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you.
Amen.